Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, your law is perfect, reviving the soul. Your testimony is sure, making wise the simple. Your precepts are right, rejoicing the heart. Your commandment is pure, enlightening the eyes. Your word is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey, the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them, your servants are warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. And so, Father, teach us all now. As I preach, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of the hearts of all those listening be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. you'll please open your Bibles to our sermon text. Uh, We'll be concluding this morning our mini-series on the first commandment. So, uh, looking again at Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, page 61 in the Pew Bibles, we'll read just the first three verses of Exodus 20. So Exodus 20, reading verses 1 through 3. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. When the global economic crisis hit the world in 2008, there followed a number of high-profile people who took their own lives. One man, Adolf Merkel, a billionaire investor, lost a fortune in the stock market. He threw himself in front of a bus. Another was a French money manager who lost over a billion dollars of his client's money in the Madoff Ponzi scheme. And there was a long list of others. Why did they do this? What was the reason? Lives and motives are very complicated, but when you boil it all down, when you make a God out of money, when you put your trust there, when you find your life there, and your God fails you, it's easy to despair. There's no reason left to live. Tim Keller tells the story of another man he met in the midst of the economic crisis. He had become a Christian just three years earlier. He had shifted his ultimate trust from money and put it in the Lord. And even though he lost a ton of money in the economic crisis, he said, if this economic meltdown had happened more than three years ago, I don't know how I could have faced it, how I would have kept going. But today I can tell you honestly, I've never been happier in my life. It makes a huge difference in your life, who you trust, where you find your happiness, what God you worship. There's only one God who will never fail you, who will never let you down. And so this morning, we're continuing to look at the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And last time we looked at what this commandment requires. How do you keep this commandment positively? 
And you do that by loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. Love the Lord with everything you are. But this morning, we want to consider the other side, what this commandment forbids, and therefore how to avoid breaking the first commandment. And this is the other side of the coin. And really, it's two sides of one coin. These two perspectives on the first commandment are inextricably linked. You can't avoid breaking the first commandment without positively keeping it. You can't avoid having other gods without positively loving the one true God, the Lord. These two, they go together, and yet, just as we need to cultivate our love for God, we also need to repent of, we need to be on guard against the sin of idolatry, the sin of having any other God. So that's going to be our focus this morning. First, we'll consider what is breaking the first commandment? What does it mean to break the first commandment? And second, what are the idols of your heart? What are the idols of the heart that the scriptures warn us about? And third, how do you do this? How do you replace idols with a greater love? So first, what is breaking the first commandment? The first commandment, you've heard it, I'll say it again. The first commandment which God spoke, uh, he himself declared from Mount Sinai in Exodus 20, verse 3. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. And as I pointed out last Sunday, this was given just after the Lord had brought his people out of Egypt. It was a land filled with other gods. They were about to head into Canaan. They were about to be surrounded by a whole different pantheon of false deities. And there they would be tempted to worship Baal and Asherah and Chemosh and all the rest. And we know, sadly, from the biblical accounts that they often failed to keep this commandment. They, in fact, bowed down to all these false gods. They rendered them worship. But I know this form of overt idolatry bowing down to a physical statue. It's uncommon today in our culture. But that does not mean that idolatry has disappeared, not in the least. As the Heidelberg Catechism says, idolatry is having or inventing something in which to put our trust instead of or in addition to the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. Tim Keller puts it this way, a false god is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. And this can be anything in your life. It can be your family, it can be your children, it can be your work, it can be your love for success or achievement, it can be a romantic relationship, or it can simply be a, a feeling of, of love, of being in love, or being loved. You can make an idol of a certain aspect of your identity. You're the competent person. You're the person who is physically fit. You're the beautiful person. You're the smart one in your friend group. You can make an idol of a social or political cause. This becomes all that matters to you. And you can even make an idol of Christian ministry. Your success in the ministry matters to you more than God himself. And of course, these examples are only scratching the surface. As Calvin wrote, the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. 
And so there is an endless number and variety of them as people are constantly inventing new idols. The first commandment is saying, don't let anything, whatever it is, usurp God's place as first in your heart. Don't, let, don't look to any created thing to give you what only he can give. Don't look elsewhere for your ultimate joy or trust or security. And certainly don't put yourself in God's place either. I'm breaking this commandment. It goes back all the way to the very beginning. It is, in fact, at the heart of all sin. When Adam and Eve committed that first sin, what was going on in their hearts? The serpent tempted Eve, saying, For God knows that when you eat of it, when you eat of that tree, when you eat that fruit, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil, Genesis 3.5. And so trusting not in God and his word, but trusting in the serpent's word, trusting in her own judgment, desiring to be like God, to usurp God's place. Eve took the fruit and ate, and Adam was there. He also took the fruit and ate. And here we see the first sin, and right at its heart is idolatry. Not a literal bowing down to a statue, but rather Adam and Eve seeking to take God's rightful place. Adam and Eve trusting in Satan's word and their own judgment and distrusting in the Lord. In all this, they are putting themselves, they are putting Satan in the place where only God should dwell as the Lord of their hearts and their lives. And this is not only the pattern of the first sin, but it is the pattern of all sin. Idolatry lies at the root of all sin. For every time you break a commandment, you are choosing your will and not God's. You are exalting self and ignoring the Lord. And this is a rejection and a betrayal of the Lord your God as God. This is the fallen human heart. We all want to go our own way, to be autonomous from God, to do our own will. And so in any particular sin, the idol you are seeking or trusting or loving, it may differ. We may simply call it self in general, or we can label it more specifically. Perhaps you're seeking pleasure or security or comfort or success or whatever it may be, whatever idol you serve, the bottom line is you are serving another God and you are not loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so you are breaking the first commandment. Every time you sin, whatever commandment you break, you also break the first commandment. And so that's the answer to our first commandment this morning. Or answer to our first question this morning. You break the first commandment whenever you put anything else before the Lord, your God. And you do this every time you sin. The second question we want to explore is to ask each of you, what are the idols of your heart? Do you know them? Are you aware of them so that you might repent of these idols? So you might be on guard of giving in to them, of returning to them, of serving them. Now, there are an endless variety of idols, but here I want to look at some of the most common, some of those that Scripture highlights, that Scripture warns us about, and in doing so, we'll learn more about the dynamics of idolatry so that we might be on guard. So first, 
Watch out for making a God of human love, of idolizing relationships. Now, right off the bat here, you can see how tricky this can be because you know that as a Christian, you are called to a high standard of love for others. We are to love one another as Christ has loved us. And this is how the world will know us by our love one for another, John 13, 34 and 35. And yet, how easy it is for a good thing like love for family, love for children to become an ultimate thing. And you become more devoted to these relationships than you are to God. When Jesus came, God in the flesh, he made it clear that he must always come first. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, Matthew 10, 37. Or as he puts it even more starkly in Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now it's true here, Jesus is speaking comparatively. He's not saying you must literally hate all these others, but he's saying you must love me more than anyone else. The early church father, Augustine, wrote of how it's not always that we love the wrong things, but we love the right things in the wrong order. We have disordered loves. We like good things, like family, spouse, children, take the highest place in our heart, the place where only God should dwell. Not only does this betray the Lord and break the first commandment, but it is destructive to these relationships as well. If you are looking to a romantic relationship, to complete you, to give you happiness and meaning and life, you are looking in vain. No sinful human being will ever be able to live up to this expectation you have. No one will ever be able to be God for you. Every last person is fallen and will disappoint you, except for Jesus Christ. Or if you're looking to your children, their behavior, their happiness, their success to be the thing that gives your life meaning. First, it's likely that they will be crushed by the weight of your expectation. But then also, you will be crushed each time they fail. But the problem isn't just that no human being, no human love can bear the weight of Godhood. It's that only the Lord Jesus Christ can come first in your heart. So watch out for making a God of human relationships. Second, watch out for making a God of money. Earlier we read the account of the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19. He asked Jesus, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. It's as simple as that. Just keep them. Which ones? And Jesus begins to list off several of the commandments, the fifth through the ninth, summing them all up, saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the man says, I've done it. All these I have kept. How clearly this is a devout, a religious man. Likely he's a Pharisee. And yet his conscience isn't clear or Perhaps he would say he has no assurance of salvation. And so he says, what do I still lack? 
And Jesus says, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Why was this young man unable to follow Jesus? Why was he unable to heed what Jesus commanded him to do? Now, Jesus here is trying to show him, first of all, that he hadn't truly obeyed the Ten Commandments as he had said. Jesus reveals that his heart was full of covetousness. He hadn't truly kept the Tenth Commandment, for he had built his identity on his riches. He refuses to give them up, even if it would gain him eternal riches, eternal life. But even more than breaking the Tenth Commandment, Here he is breaking the first commandment in two very clear ways. First, he refuses a direct command from the Lord. He is rejecting Christ as his God. He is not loving the Lord as he ought to. But second, he is doing that because he has made an idol. He has made a false god out of money. And that is the God he has chosen to serve. And he will not let go of it. He falls into the very trap that Jesus warns about in the Sermon on the Mount. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Matthew 6, 24. And this is the warning for us all to take care not to fall into the trap of making an idol out of money, out of possessions, as Jesus says in Luke 12, 15, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Money is one of the most common idols that there is in this world. And to make a God of money, it doesn't necessarily mean that you've abandoned your whole life, your whole life's pursuit is simply controlled by blind greed. That's perhaps a false conception we have of what it means to make an idol of money. It can simply mean that you've put your trust in your wealth. You feel safe, you feel secure, not because you're resting in the Lord, but because your bank account is big enough. Or it can be the opposite. You have an excessive anxiety, a lack of security about money. You're always worried you never have enough, and so money is constantly on your mind. Of course, the idolatry is clearer when you simply want more, when you often find yourself daydreaming or fantasizing about how to make more money, what it would be like if you had a bigger salary, and you look with envy on those who have more than you do. Hear Paul's warning. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. First Timothy 6, 9 through 10. In other words, he's saying money makes a terrible God. If you love it, you trust it, you serve it, make it the center of your life, it will ruin you. I consider someone far better, a far better master than money. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, 
Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Jesus Christ is the one who humbled himself, who came down from the glory and the riches of heaven, who poured out his life on the cross that you might receive the riches of an eternal salvation. It's as you get to know the generous grace of the Lord, the abundant love of your Savior, Jesus Christ, that the power of money will lose its grip on you. So watch out for making a God out of money. Next, watch out for making a God out of your work, out of serving the God of success. Now, at first, this may seem just like that last idol of money. But there is a difference here. It's, it's a difference of, of motivation. Yes, you, you work hard, you make money as you go, but what's your motive? Your motive is not necessarily the money you are making, but the sense of achievement, of progress, of all the benefits, the recognition, the sense of security that comes with it. <clears throat> now, even though your idol of career and of achievement is not a, a real entity, it's not a real God, it is a false invented God, there's still a real sense in which, to the extent that you serve this false God well, it will bless you. You will find a certain measure of happiness here, as long as things are going right. But then you slip up. If you can't keep up with the demands, this God will curse you. It will say, you are a failure. You are nothing. Everything feels like it's falling apart. There's no grace when it comes to false gods. You have to constantly serve them to earn their approval. The good news is, the good news of Jesus Christ is that we receive from him grace that is not based on anything that we have done. We receive the blessing and our Savior has taken the curse in our place. Christ teaches the believer that our identity is found in him and what he has done. Not in anything we have done, not in anything we could ever do. And he calls us to be faithful in our work in service to him, in service to others, and to trust him with the results. Perhaps you'll be successful, perhaps not. The results are in the Lord's hand. That's why in everything we do, we say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. If the Lord wills, it will be successful or not. All that matters is that we are faithful. Watch out for making a God out of your work out of success. And next, watch out for making a God out of pleasure. The Lord has made this beautiful world that we live in, filled with so many good things. Scriptures say that on the sixth day, the Lord God looked on his creation and he saw that it was very good. But in our fallen state, we can take God's good gifts and we use them wrongly. And so we read in 1 John chapter 2, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Oh, how easily we can become entranced 
and fall in love with the things of this world. And the desires from the flesh, the desires of the flesh here can be any desire for any created thing that has crossed the boundary, that has gone too far. Of course, our minds immediately go to a sexual desire that is lustful, sexual immorality, seeking pornography, all these issues, all these are issues of idolatry, seeking to serve the God of personal pleasure in a way that goes beyond God's boundaries, and seeking to serve these rather than serving the one true God. But sexual desires are only one small part of our earthly desires. We can love the world and feed the flesh in our excess desire for food, for alcohol, for any variety of mind-altering substances. As Paul writes in Philippians 3.19, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Your idol could be giving yourself over to entertainment in the form of sports or video games or social media or mindlessly surfing the web. It could be an addiction to gambling or shopping or even more lofty and cultured things like art or music. If anything is taking the place of God in your life, it can be an idol. The Lord says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The, pleading, the fleeting pleasures of this world, they can never ultimately satisfy. They seem like they're working for a moment, but in the end, they are all broken cisterns that can never sate your thirst. Not only that, but the more you give yourself to them, the more thirsty, the more unsatisfied they become. Ed Welch describes our sinful addictions as like eating a banquet in the grave. We see the downward spiral in Romans chapter 1. Sinful mankind exchanges the truth of God for a lie, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And the most terrifying thing of all is that God ultimately hands people over to the lusts of their heart. He hands them over to the false gods that they are worshiping, to ever-increasing debasement, ever-increasing self-deception, and the spiral continues downward to destruction. But you were created for something better, to glorify God, to enjoy Him forever. And only when the Lord is in the first place in your heart can you receive the good things in this good world that God has created and receive them as God's gifts. And you can enjoy these gifts within the proper boundaries with self-control so that they do not harm you, but rather you receive them with thanksgiving to God. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Watch out for making a God out of his good gifts in this world, seeking merely your own pleasure. On all this, I've just surveyed a few of the possible idols of the heart. I've merely scratched the surface of some of the most common relationships, money, success, pleasure, and I'm just scratching the surface. The human heart is always inventing more idols. And now we need to ask our third question, how do you Remove the idols of your heart. I've been touching on this a bit as we've gone along, but I want to focus our intention here. 
First, you must discern the idols of your heart and repent. Perhaps as I was surveying these different idols, there were certain themes that jumped out at you. You recognized immediately, this is where I struggle. I hope for many of you, the idols of your heart are already evident. But if not, it can be very helpful to ask some diagnostic questions. As I've made clear, you are called to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. You are to trust him. You are to serve him. You are to obey him. You are to delight in him, meditate upon him, find your security in him. He is to be your source of greatest joy, your greatest comfort, your ultimate hope. His word is your guide. He is your ultimate rudder in every decision. And if that is where the Lord is supposed to be, you can discern your idols by asking, what are the things that take the place of the Lord in any of these areas? What do I do any of those verbs concerning another thing? What do you love? Is there something or someone that you truly love so much that it is competing in your heart for God's place? And here you need to Think about where your mind goes when there is nothing else immediately demanding your attention, nothing else to occupy it. What do you daydream about? What do you do when you have free time? What do you choose? Another good question is, what do you spend your money on when you have extra money to spare? These are pointers to what is most significant in your heart. Perhaps it's an idol. We could then ask, what do you trust in? Is there something or someone that gives you comfort, that gives you security? And the way to really get to the heart of this is to ask the following. What could you not live without? What would you dread to lose? Perhaps you won't know until it is taken away. We saw this a couple weeks ago with Jonah. When the Lord had mercy on Nineveh, not only did Jonah become furiously angry at the Lord, but he fell into a pit of black despair. He said, Lord, take my life. It is better for me to die than to live. And here we see the Lord was revealing the idols of Jonah's heart. What was his idol? Clearly, he, he hated the Ninevites, but behind that was a love for the, the safety and the security of his people, Israel. And he didn't think they could be safe unless Nineveh was destroyed. Of course, he also clearly idolized his own wisdom, his own plan. They must be destroyed. And he didn't trust the Lord to protect, protect Israel any other way. You must do my plan. You must do it my way. And turning this back to you, is there anything in your life that if you lost it, you wouldn't just be sorrowful, but you would be tempted to despair? a sign you are dealing with a deeply rooted idol. And here's another diagnostic question. It seems very simple on its face, but can be very revealing because we break the first commandment whenever we break any other commandment. And so we need to ask, what's the motive causing me to break another commandment? What is the idol behind my behavior? So take, for example, the often broken fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. What's the reason you are most likely to break this commandment? To not worship the Lord, to not keep the whole day holy to the Lord. Is it out of comfort? 
out of laziness, out of a desire to get ahead or stay ahead at work, out of a desire to please family and be at the family event, out of a desire to stay up on the most important sports event, whatever it is, or maybe, that may be pointing directly at an idol of your heart. The same may go for any other commandment. Did you lie to protect your reputation? Is your reputation an idol? And again, we could multiply questions like this and so on. You need to discern your idols that you might repent of them. But that's just step one. You do need to repent to confess your sin, to forsake it. That's not all. If you had access to the latest machinery, if you had the most high-tech science lab, what would you say is the most effective way to get all the air out of a glass beaker? Your first instinct might be to think of all the ways to create a, a vacuum to suck all the air out. Then you realize, if you think about it, it's far simpler than that. Just fill that glass beaker with water. That's going to get all the air out a lot easier. The truth is that nature hates a vacuum. The air would always be trying to get back in. And the same is true with idolatry. If you just try to get rid of one idol from your heart, your tendency will always be to replace it with another. The only true solution to idolatry is to drive out the idols and to replace them with a greater love. And that means you need to fill your heart with a love for the Lord. As Augustine famously wrote, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and your, our heart is restless until it rests in you. And so this takes us back to everything we saw last week. Your heart must be melted by the gospel of Jesus Christ, of all that he has done for you in his perfect and final sacrifice. Remember that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Do you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you bask in his love and mercy for you only as your heart is filled with his love and filled with a love for him in return? Will this drive out a love for every lesser things? So keep growing in your love for Jesus Christ, loving him with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And the idols of this world will more and more lose their appeal so that Christ might reign supreme in your heart. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you and give you praise that you are our God. We recognize that as our creator, you could simply demand that we worship you, that we serve you, and that would be enough. 
But not only that, you have loved us and you have given us your only son. And so we are called to love you and uh, respond to your love. And so, Lord, we pray that you would fill our hearts with a love for you, uh, that uh, we would not be tempted to love any lesser thing. We thank you for the love of Jesus Christ and for his perfect sacrifice. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us to see the idols, that you would help us to see when we are turning away and going astray, and that we would truly repent and truly be filled with a greater love for you than any lesser thing, any false deity, so that our hearts uh, might truly honor and worship you and you alone. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.